This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Friday, September 25th, 2020. We hear from the author of a new book warning that we are at a critical point in creating public policy that accurately reflects the burgeoning impact of artificial intelligence on modern human life. And with fewer cars plying our highways and byways right now, one would imagine that auto insurance rates would be on the decline. But to our collective chagrin, it's proving to be rather the opposite. All of this starts now. Sometimes they say we've got to worry about artificial intelligence. I worry about human intelligence. Uh, this might be one of those days. Uh, maybe the fellows at the bottom of the hour can set us right. You know, on the matter of artificial intelligence, I'm rather intrigued with uh, where this is going, how it's playing out, and how we're doing. And uh, this in contrast to, say, other developing nations and uh, big Megillah countries like China. Let's find out. Uh, right now, Daryl West has joined us on the line, senior fellow with the Center for Tech innovation at the brookings institution and author of turning point policy making in the era of artificial intelligence mr west good to have you on the oakley show in toronto good afternoon nice to be with you john so tell me uh where is artificial intelligence uh most impactful these days i mean because you sort of center on that from what i understand in your book on five key areas tell us why you chose those specifically well, we think AI is the transformative technology of our time, and as you uh, mentioned, it is being deployed in many different sectors, so finance, healthcare, and education, uh, transportation, e-commerce, and national defense. So really, uh, virtually every area is being affected by this. How would you say it's transformative? Give me a couple of hardcore examples of what it's transformed uh, of recent vintage. Well, there are lots of different examples. So a lot of financial institutions now are using AI for loan approvals. So your ability to get a mortgage or to get a credit uh, can be dependent on an algorithm. Uh, when you shop online, uh, you may notice there are product recommendations that are popping up. Uh, that's based on AI that has monitored the products you've bought, the products you've looked at but haven't purchased, and they are making recommendations to you. And Amazon claims a third of their sales now are based on product recommendations. So they often know what you want to buy before you know what you want to buy. So there are lots of different uh, uses of it, and it's uh, certainly creating some opportunities, but also creating some risks for people. Tell me about the human element in these algorithms. Like, uh, who programs the algorithms? Uh, I mean, they take on, I guess, a life of their own to a certain extent, but how is that played out? Well, this is uh, the problem. It, you know, it's software coders who are coming up with this, and generally they're just focused on the product. So they want an algorithm that can analyze data and then act on that information. The problem is 
there often are broader societal ramifications. They're not thinking about that uh, because that's not really uh, uh, their incentive. There could be ethical problems uh, with uh, particular uh, deployments. Uh, facial recognition is being used by law enforcement in a number of uh, different uh, communities now, and that's highly problematic because it's inaccurate and there are uh, biases that are built into it. And so the problem is the people who are empowered to design uh, these products are not thinking about the broader ramifications. So our book tries to address uh, those social ramifications, the economic consequences, and the ethical issues that are raised by AI. Interesting you bring that up. Uh, I have a friend whose son works in the business and the doppelgangers that they're developing now. I mean, you can't tell that this isn't the actual person. In some cases, it's rather frightening, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there are fake videos that you would not be able to discern as being fake. They could take your voice, have you say things that you've never said, but people would not be able to distinguish that fake voice of yours uh, from uh, you yourself. Uh, the same thing applies with uh, videos. Uh, they can basically uh, manufacture uh, videos that are so realistic that, again, it's hard to distinguish the reality from the fake. So it just creates a lot of uh, worry. Uh, people watch the Hollywood Terminator movers, uh, movies. Uh, they worry about robots uh, taking over. So there's a lot of fear about the future moving forward. People are worried that humans are losing control of the technology. Well, has the law kept pace? I mean, do we have applicable laws to uh, maybe, you know, rein this stuff in or keep tabs on it? Uh, absolutely not. The The law and the policy and the regulations are way behind the uh, technology. In the United States, we basically delegated almost all the decisions to the private tech companies. So they decide what products get developed, how they get deployed, to whom uh, they get uh, sold. But we are starting to see a public tech lash, a backlash against the tech companies. You know, people worried about Facebook and uh, manipulation of social media. Uh, of course, in the middle of our American election, we're worried about foreign intervention uh, in the election. Uh, people are worried about the fairness of the algorithms. Are there biases, the lack of transparency? So there are a lot of uh, problems. So our book does present a policy blueprint. We talk about a number of different ideas to try and bend the technology towards human values to keep humans in control and to develop AI for the public good, as opposed to just focusing everything on making uh, commercial products that make money. Yeah, you know, we talked about that in the past with the, the social media platforms and the way that human behavior is modified or manipulated, even to the extent, as you were just saying a moment or two ago, uh, you may not even know you wanted the product, but they have already got you programmed in the system somehow through the algorithms, the data mining, where they uh, connected several dots. And uh, it's almost like leading uh, the sheep to the slaughter, isn't it? Uh, definitely. I mean, they have so much data on people. They actually know you better than we often know ourselves because they know not just what people think of themselves, but the way we act online, uh, the things we like, the things we don't like, the products we buy, the things we skip over, uh, the news stories uh, we uh, read. And they can analyze all this and draw uh, conclusions uh, based on that. So that is uh, the frightening part. And so we do need to take privacy seriously. We do need to be worried about cybersecurity. And we do need to think about the power of the large tech companies. Daryl, you're almost making it sound like a Frankensteinian monster that's gotten away from us at this point. 
Well, it has gotten away from us, but the book is optimistic in the following sense. We argue humans are still in charge. We can make policies, pass laws, and enact regulations that uh, mitigate the worst excesses that we're seeing, uh, the problems of bias, uh, the lack of fairness. So we do think we're still in charge. There are lots of things we could do that would make a big difference in terms of controlling the future of technology. How are we doing relative to other countries? I mean, uh, you've talked about surveillance and security. I mean, these surveillance societies like China, uh, they seem like they're way ahead of the game when it comes to applications of AI. Uh, China is investing tremendous resources in AI, and just given their large populations, it's very easy for them to scale up. So when they find something that works, they can basically scale up to a million users uh, very quickly. So uh, they also don't have the privacy concerns uh, that we have. Uh, As you uh, mentioned, uh, they're uh, using AI in some really awful ways now in terms of mass uh, surveillance and repression of, uh, of uh, minorities. So uh, we do have to keep an eye on that. And we need to make sure that our use of AI reflects our values and, and that we don't get in a race with another country that might take us uh, down the wrong direction. A fascinating time. Uh, we're living on the precipice of something that's truly revolutionary, but we don't want to let this thing uh, get out of our grasp. I guess this is the point of calling it turning point after all, isn't it? Absolutely. That is the reason we came up with the title. Uh, we are at a turning point between utopia and dystopia, and the crucial variable in determining that future is public policy. Wow. Uh, the thin uh, edge of the knife's edge. Terrell West, Senior Fellow with the Center for Tech Innovation at Brookings Institution, author of Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. Really appreciate you joining us this afternoon. Stay well in Washington, D.C. Thank you, John. Some smaller restaurants and bars are uh, noticing their insurance rates going. In one instant, I think there was $9,000 climbed to thirty grand because of the pandemic. And uh, we heard a lot of outraged business people. So I'm wondering, did that translate with auto insurance as well? Let's find out for sure. Joining us on the line, Christine Hubbard is the operations manager with Beck Taxi. Christine, good to have you back in the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. So how has the pandemic impacted insurance rates uh, for the better or worse as far as you've seen? So it's hard to say uh, if the pandemic is actually having an effect on insurance or if it's just a coincidence. But the reality is that taxi drivers and commercial transportation vehicles are getting hammered. What do you mean by hammered? Can you give me a for instance? So, for example, um, a single driver who owns his taxi would normally pay $6,000 a year for commercial insurance. And that's 24-hour coverage protecting pedestrians and cyclists, people in the vehicle and around. That insurance now is being switched to facility, and it gives them, for $22,000 a year, liability-only coverage. Wow. Uh, Reduced coverage, but it's costing you almost four times as much. And it's putting people out of business. So what we're seeing now, hundreds, maybe thousands at this point, of taxis are parked. And it's a combination. Obviously, business is slower due to the pandemic. But add on uh, this issue with the insurance, and it is a crisis that's happening. Um, These people are, you know, again, thousands of small businesses out of business. Well, how did the insurance companies rationalize this leap in rates? So what's happened is that there is um, an issue with the provincial government and the way that it regulates commercial insurance. 
Right now, we're looking to see what's called loss transfer. In the commercial auto industry, um, there is no fault insurance that still requires, even if a taxi driver is not at fault, his or her insurance has to be the one paying out. And they will, you know, so no fault is actually the issue here. And it would take a very small regulatory change, committee level, um, you know, issue to get this fixed and to invite more insurers into the industry for taxi drivers. When you say the onus then or the burden is placed upon the taxi driver, even through no fault, uh, you're saying if the other individual bumps into the cab, causes the accident, I mean, usually it used to be a wash, right? Uh, Each insurance company, respectively, would pick up the charges, but now the taxi driver's insurance has to cover, indemnify both parties? Every time. So this is the, you know, this is what is keeping insurers from um, entering the market. But it's also insurance that's required by the provincial government and in the city of Toronto for taxis to continue working. So you, you can see the issue there. It used to be a very high risk business to insure a taxi. But now we're finding that it's not the taxi drivers that are at fault. Um, I say most of the time, but they're still the ones carrying the burden. And and the burden will be transferred to everyone in Ontario because this facility program that they're all moving to is owned by all of the insurers. And these are the same insurers that cover your personal auto policy. It's at a deficit right now. It's running at a deficit now. As more and more taxis go into facility, all of our rates are going to go up. Right, because as we understand, insurance is really pooled resources and therefore, you know, as people dip into for payouts and things like that, whether it's fraudulent or legitimate, everybody assumes the liability uh, directly or indirectly. I got That's it, right. Christine. We, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and to your point about, you know, there is a risk management element to this where the taxi industry has um, become very involved in um, the risk management on our roads. We know about the Vision Zero um, goals in our city, and we know that it's important to do our part. So things like telematics, GPS tracking, you know, these are all things that have been introduced um, since this this rule of, of you know, no loss transfer has been introduced, and we want to see that change, and we're willing to do our part to participate. Again, Christine Hubbard's with us, operations manager with Beck Taxi. So, uh, Christine, I mean, in general, the pandemic has seen fewer cars on the roads. I mean, it's getting back to some sense of normalcy now still. Uh, traffic seems to be lighter than it had been at peak pre-pandemic. And certainly in the summer, uh, it had been, you know, really uh, reduced significantly. Just, you know, experientially, I'm talking now. What about your taxi fleet? Uh, fewer drivers, far fewer on the road. What's a reduction been percentage-wise? Absolutely. So we started with about 30% of our fleet. And I'd say that uh, when the pandemic first started and the the demand and the supply were pretty balanced. And we're finding now we have about 50% of our fleet back, but that's not, I can't speak for the entire fleet of taxis in Toronto. There are thousands of independent drivers, other companies as well. But what we're seeing is that not only with the loss of business, Um, we may have more cars on the road than others. But with this insurance issue, we're going to see more cars reduced as demand starts to increase. Wheelchair accessible service is going to be affected. The TTC um, being able to have vehicles to do uh, sedan-based or wheelchair accessible service is going to diminish. We really need to see everyone getting on board if we want to make sure that these vehicles are going to be there for people to get to their doctor's appointments, to get to school, you know, this is a real issue. 
I would have thought, though, it makes sense that if there are fewer cars on the road, uh, the liability is diminished and therefore insurance rates would follow suit. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the case, does it? It doesn't seem to be the case. And, and you know, absolutely, you're right. Of course, with, with lower uh, levels of traffic and, you know, you would think there'd be lower levels of uh, accidents and what have you, we've seen the complete opposite. And so these people who are out there serving the community, um, taking people where they need to go are, are just, you know, doing so with less income than they were before and now being told they have to pay more or stay home. Do you think the insurance companies are exploiting the situation? I mean, because the government could regulate this and redress this issue that you're talking about where the, the burden falls on the taxi driver or the company. Uh, what would it take? I mean, is the lobby too strong? Why, wasn't the, why would the government then not adjust things, you know, and be more equitable from at least your standpoint? It's really tough to say. I think that there's just so much going on that this just hasn't been on the radar and I do think that taxi drivers, any of those who are listening now, would say that they, you know, their voices are just never heard. And I, I feel like we are a bit of a, a marginalized industry in that um, the issues that we face and that taxi drivers face, uh, and I'd you know, love for you to reach out to some of them directly, but they just aren't heard. And we see this over and over again, whether we're talking about the municipal government or the provincial government, but we're hoping that there will be some productive meetings, conversations have started, but, you know, we never know where a conversation will lead. Yeah, I'm guessing uh, over the last year or two, you know, with the advent of Uber and other uh, drive-sharing things, I mean, probably a fair number of people have just handed back their licenses, haven't they? You know, that, that's something that we might start to see happening. The concern is, and drivers are aware of it too, as, as a ride-hail driver or those companies that you just mentioned, um, they don't have the same coverage as taxis do. And, and that's an issue altogether wrong. You know, if a person mm. is coming out to work in the ride-hail vehicle um, and they haven't turned on the app yet, but they're about to and you get run over, they have no commercial insurance, no commercial coverage. And so I think we've seen a degradation of the level of safety and protection for people on all of our streets, drivers, riders, everyone else. And I think just because it's been easier, they've looked the other way. All right. Uh, tough way to make a living, especially now uh, compounded problems with pandemic. Christine, thanks Absolutely. so uh, much for, yeah, for sharing your thoughts on that. Christine Hubbard, operations manager with Beck Taxi. Stay well. Thank you so much. You too. This has been the John Oakley Show podcast for Friday, September 25th, 2020. Listen weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern Time. Turn that dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com. Or why not search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. 
Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.